Welcome to Family Matters with your host, Dr. Virginia Collin. In this program, we will explore some of the challenges families face and the solutions they create in today's world, where marriage, parenting, and family forms are not what they once were. Now, here is Dr. Virginia Collin. Welcome to Family Matters. I'm Virginia Collin, and I will be talking today with Dr. Avon Hart Johnson, who is the president of DC Project Connect. We'll be talking about what happens to a family when a loved one goes to prison. And I'm going to leave it to Dr. Hart Johnson to tell you a little bit more about herself and about DC Project Connect. I appreciate you having us on um, and particularly having me on to represent DC Project Connect, which is a nonprofit organization. And our primary purpose is to support family members of the incarcerated. And I'll talk a little bit about that shortly. But first, I'd like to pause and acknowledge my board of directors for all that they do. And I especially would like to acknowledge the executive director of DC Project Connect, Mr. Jeffrey Johnson, who has a background in grief recovery, psychology, and he's former federal law enforcement. I also would like to acknowledge our volunteers who make it possible for DC Project connect to achieve its mission and its vision and to support family members of the incarcerated. And I thank the family members for trusting us during their time of crisis. A little bit about me as the project project, um, or the uh, president of DC Project Connect. I have a background in forensic psychology. And for those of you that may not know what that is, it's a blending of a legal background as well as a psychology background. I have a pack a Ph.D. in Human Services Counseling, and I am also a Grief Recovery Specialist. And I volunteer at D.C.'s only halfway house for females, uh, better known as a residential reentry center for women. The primary work that I do at D.C. Project Connect is based on the research Um, that I conducted a couple years ago in the Washington, D.C. area. I understood that in D.C., the rates of incarceration is pretty high. And when you think about the the prevalence of incarceration for African-American males in the district, you know, if if an African-American man... Um, does not have a high school education, and he is unemployed, he faces a three out of four chance of uh, becoming uh, incarcerated in his lifetime. And so, therefore, I was curious to find out what happens to African-American women when their loved one becomes incarcerated. And I know that the African-American family is not the traditional, you know, you know, 2.5 children and the nuclear family of husband and wife. I know that our configurations are different. A different um, uh, aspect to look at this is that there was another problem that I uh, I posited that was unique about the family uh, members of the incarcerated in the D.C. area is that D.C. doesn't have a prison. So all of the D.C. felons are transferred to the Federal Bureau of Prisons to serve their sentences. And in essence, they could be placed anywhere from, say, Virginia all the way to California to serve their sentences. And so I said to myself, you know, this has got to have 
Um, in addition to the geographical strains, it's got to be a financial strain. It's got to be a problem maintaining communication. And so I set out to understand what is the impact on African-American women. And what I did is I looked at the psychological impacts, the social impacts, the physical impacts, and the symbolic impacts. And what I found was groundbreaking in that it was not found in the literature. I discovered and named a theory called symbolic imprisonment, grief, and coping theory. And as you can tell from the name, there is an underpinning of grief. And I tell you, the women that I talked to in my research sample indicated that they experienced grief as if someone had died. But the thing about this grief is that they did not have closure. And they went through these cycles of grief, you know, during the day. And then sometimes, even though they could work and maintain a job, when they came back home, they still were enveloped by this grief. And in fact, I, I found that as a, in addition to the grief being the underpinning, women were symbolically imprisoning themselves. And that's pretty deep. And let me explain what that means. Women began to socially isolate from the very support networks that you think would be in place to, to help them get through the grief. And I'm talking about family members, maybe church, you know, members, things like that. Women began to self-identify with feeling criminalized as if they were serving a sentence. And so when you think about the level of stigma and shame associated with a loved one's incarceration and then the humiliation that the women were actually feeling, you know, it, it helps you to understand why I named the theory symbolic imprisonment, grief, and coping. And I'll talk about the coping a little later. But I began to disseminate my research across the United States as well as internationally. And the thing that would happen after I would, you know, hold my seminars and my workshops, people would come up to me and they'd almost talk in a whisper. And they'd say, listen, you know, I know that I am a male or I know that I am a Caucasian female but I'm feeling exactly what you're describing in your theory. And so after pondering that and doing some more work, I wrote a book. It's called The Symbolic Imprisonment of African-American Women, The Legacy of Mass Incarceration. And so what I did is I thought about it, and as I started to, you know, talk to more and more people, and, the, you know, I talked to, you know, sisters of incarcerated loved ones. I talked to mothers that had sons incarcerated. And it seems like the consensus is that everyone was experiencing this. And so I started a support group, and that was one of the goals of my my doctoral research is that I wanted to support uh, start a support group that would help women to number one raise the level of awareness so that they knew what they were feeling but number two to enfranchise them to be able to share their stories among other women that would be safe and within that uh, space where they could actually release there were many women that told me that they never got a chance to share their stories because people would cut them off. So it was very fulfilling for me to do that. In terms of DC Project Connect's uh, focus and mission, 
we look at five areas in which we believe that we can be effective in fulfilling our mission. We look at primarily strengthening families. We believe that families need critical resources during their time of crisis. And you might say, well, Dr. Avon, what are those crisis points? And I would tell you that some of those crisis points involve the arrest of a loved one. You know, truth be told, there is a myth that many of the people that are family members of the incarcerated, you know, are familiar with all of this. Well, the truth is, is that many of them are not. When DC Project Connects receives a phone call in the middle of the night or receives an internet request, most of the family members are at a complete loss. They do not know how to navigate the criminal justice system. They don't know how to find their loved ones when they're confined. They don't know how to make those critical decisions when it comes to, do I pay my rent, do I pay my mortgage, or do I pay the bail bondsmen? So we provide an environment where the loved ones of the incarcerated can make better decisions. They ultimately make those decisions themselves. But we provide that support um, by giving them or providing them with information resources. We call it talking people off a ledge. Um, We also provide grief counseling. We know that there's a tremendous amount of, of grief, but there's also shame. And I'll share a quick story about a young lady who was experiencing grief. And she told me a story about going to... The prison, and I think this will give the audience an idea of the stigma, the shame, and the humiliation that might uh, be experienced by those that have loved ones incarcerated. So it had been ten years since—I mean, uh, uh, six years since she had visited her loved one, and it was partially because she didn't have the financial resources to make the trip to the prison. And keeping in mind that DC prisoners serve their sentences across the United States if they're D.C. felons. She drove uh, multiple hours to get to the prison, and she wasn't very familiar with the rules and the regulations um, at the prison. She had her hair done up in a bun. It was pulled back, and she had bobby pins in it. And so she gets at the prison, and she's a lot, you know, nervous, and she's trembling, and she's standing in line. And, of course, those of you that aren't familiar, sometimes there are, you know, security dogs that come around and they sniff you for contraband. In addition to that, she had a cavity search to see whether or not she had anything under her tongue or in her, you know, gum area, and she didn't, of course. And then it was time for her to clear the metal detector. And she only had three times to, you know, attempts to clear the metal detector. Well, she had bobby pins in her hair. These are metal bobby pins and the metal detector that she has to pass through to make sure she's not carrying any weapons or anything like that. Um, She only had three times to get through it. And so each time that she'd make an attempt, and she's up to two times now, and she's removed these bobby pins from her hair. Well, the third time she decides, you know what, I've got to completely remove this hairpiece because I'm not going to clear this metal detector and I've 
driven all of this way, and it's going to let my, you know, loved one down, you know, and I'm not going to be able to see, you know, or she's saying I'm not going to be able to see my husband. Well, by the time she takes all the bobby pins out and she puts her little hairpiece into the tray and they pass it through and she clears the metal detector, and she says that when she got to the other side, the bad thing about it is that she, you know, the whole hairpiece was exposed and she had alopecia. And alopecia is when you have tremendous hair loss because of stress or whatever other given reasons. Her reason to me was that she was stressed out. And she was humiliated after that experience. So it kind of gives you an idea of what it's like, you know, and that's one of the extreme, you know, uh, examples. But it gives you an idea of what it's like to actually go through that kind of experience. So very quickly, um, in terms of the other things that DC Project Connect does, we advocate for social change as well. And that means that we are trying to put a face to the families of the incarcerated. You know, we, we try to advocate for policy change. I talked about D.C. prisoners serving their sentences, you know, across the United States. And I'm not just talking about guys. I'm talking about women as well, women that have been separated at birth, given birth in the prison system as they're shackled to their beds. And they are separated moments, you know, or maybe hours later, and then their children go back home with a caregiver if they're lucky, and these family members are separated. We try to advocate so that these family members stay within a 250-mile radius. We ask for uh, family-friendly visiting rooms, those kinds of things. We try to engage our community and faith-based partners so that they can collaborate with us because we know that we can't do it alone, so we try to partner with them. The, The other thing that we do is raise awareness within the public and private sector levels, and we're trying to dispel the myth. Now, you know that recently within the District of Columbia, we have a ban-the-box legislation where, you know, employers are not really supposed to ask about somebody's felony conviction until they've actually been, you know, considered for the job. And so what we're trying to do is say, hey, Those of you in the HR department, you all have a tremendous role in helping these returning citizens to become, um, you know, employed because we know that the burden is on the family in terms of helping returning citizens that do come home for prison. We know that the family is providing that level of support. And then finally... In terms of DC Project Connect's mission, we also uh, focus on evidence-based practices and research to make sure that all the programs that we put in place, that there is a level of evidence-based decision-making and metrics in place and those kinds of things. So I'll yield, Dr. Colin, and ask you (laughs) if you have any questions. I've been uh, going for it for a while. (laughs) I I do. The thing that surprised me the most about what you said was that there wasn't already a support system. In a world where three quarters of a set of black men are going to go to prison for some part of their lives, I sort of expected that the community would be aware. This is just something that happens. It's something that we all have to be prepared to deal with. We'll help each other through it. 
And you've described, you've said that that's not what happens, that instead of uh, turning to their families and their churches and their friends for support, women isolate themselves. Okay. Can you explain that at all? Yeah, let's let's unpack this a little bit at a time. So let's first deal with church, community, and family. Okay. You know, there's a level of what I call exposure fatigue. And what I mean by that is imagine, you know, someone that has an incarcerated loved one and the stress and the trauma. And depending on the nature of the crime, you know, you've heard the same story over and over again. And you've heard, you know, the family talk about what it's like to be separated and to go through that grief and after a while people I don't know if they become desensitized but as one lady in my study indicated people stop listening the church has been a tremendous support to family members who have incarcerated loved ones but the church you know the church provides holistic needs um, you know or support to to its congregants Um, the community there is starting to be a change of the tide, and there's starting to be a greater level of awareness and more support to individuals because, let's face it, this is becoming something that's on the national agenda. And so I somewhat say that we've been given permission to speak about this as something that we acknowledge that takes place within our communities. Um, There's a bipartisan movement towards smart sentencing. So there's also an acknowledgement that 60% of those that are in the, uh, the prison system are people of color, but then there's 40% that are not. So now we're starting to, to hear a little bit more, you know, um, focus on support systems. How can we have a restorative approach within our communities to support um, not only the families, but also the returning citizens. And in fact, as we move towards smart sentencing, we've got to figure out something as a community, how we as community members, as nonprofit leaders, how we're going to support returning citizens because research tells us that the federal system cannot provide all the support and rehabilitation that that's needed. In fact, we know that that is not the case. So let's return back to why people might not be supported. Well, keep in mind that the underpinning of symbolic imprisonment, grief, and coping theory is grief. But there's also shame and humiliation. So think about what happens when you're shamed. And the rest of the community has an association fallacy, which means that you're guilty by association. And when you think about it, people have a very difficult time separating the family members of the offender from the offender themselves. And so what happens is these family members, you know, have a tendency to hide in shame. They have a tendency to mask their emotions and even apologize for feeling grief for someone that's that's incarcerated. And let me give you an example. Dr. Hart Johnson, Mm -hmm. I Mm -hmm. hate to interrupt you, but I'm going to have to do it at some point. We need to take a break. Okay. We'll be back in a couple of minutes, and I'm sure there will be lots more to learn about how prison affects family life. Absolutely.
Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com Most adults are able to make good decisions about how their families can move forward. They do not need to rely on courts to make such decisions, especially in cases of divorce. Far too many people suffer unnecessary anguish because they do not know what family mediators can do. We help people discuss problems constructively in a private, confidential setting. We help them stop fighting and stay out of court. To learn more about mediation and other family matters, visit ColinFamilyMediationGroup.com. Colin has one L and no S. Are you struggling with emotional, financial, and legal stress related to divorce? The Guide to Low-Cost Divorce in Virginia by Virginia Collin and Rebecca Martin teaches how to handle these processes in any state with special attention to Virginia's laws. This book can help you take care of yourself, get free legal advice, develop a good co-parenting plan, keep expenses down, and arrange a do-it-yourself divorce. The Guide to Low-Cost Divorce in Virginia is available from Amazon for just $4.99. Family members too often find themselves in court arguing about separation, parenting schedules, financial issues, divorce, estates, or care of an elderly relative. There's a better way to solve a family problem. Work with a professional mediator in private, confidential meetings. To learn more, visit the Academy of Professional Family Mediators at apfmnet.org. That's apfmnet.org. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Family Matters. To reach Dr. Virginia Collin or today's guest, Please call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radio show at com. Now, back to Family Matters. Dr. Avon Hart Johnson is with me today on Family Matters, describing her research about what happens to families when one loved one goes to prison, and also some of the work that she does with DC Project Connect, which you can find online at www.dcprojectconnect.com. So if you feel moved to uh, get more information or help out, that's a place to go to look. Before the break, we were talking about how it happens that women wind up feeling ashamed and isolating themselves socially, even though so many other people in their communities have to deal with the same kind of problem. I'd like to ask now a little more about how this is different if how it affects children and how it's different if it's a mom rather than a dad who's going to jail sure sure so when we think about children the first thing that i'd like to say is that you know oftentimes children have a tendency you know when something goes wrong with the family for an example 
during a divorce. You know, children have a way of internalizing, thinking that they have the power to to make or break things. So children have a tendency to internalize um, things when a father or mother is incarcerated, and somehow, you know, they, they sometimes believe that they're the blame. The other thing that usually happens, and this is what I've found out by talking to various family members, is that the children aren't always told what happens. So you think about... You know, having a family member, and I, I talk, I talked a little bit about, you know, uh, non-traditional families or you know different family configurations. Imagine having, you know, a mother and father in the same home, and then all of a sudden, the father or the mother is missing. The child may begin to feel that it's her or his fault. Um, I talked to one young lady whose husband was incarcerated and her son became incarcerated uh, within the same six-month period, and the child began to act out in school. And so we talked it through a little bit, and what she found out is that, you know, the all the men in the family seemed to become incarcerated. And so I said to her that it's somewhat the kind of reaction that a child has when you're in the grocery store and you get separated from the mom and the store clerk returns the child to the mom and the the child walks up and kicks the mom. And what the child is really saying is that, you know, don't separate from me again. Don't leave me. And so I think that when we think about the need for secure relationships and the, 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 the attachment bonds that take place at a young age, we know that when families are intact, children develop secure attachments and therefore they kind of go out into the world and they develop appropriate social relationships. But the same can occur you know, or just the opposite can occur if a family member becomes incarcerated. You know, perhaps they develop maladaptive uh, behaviors where, you know, maybe they're at a high risk of repeating the cycle of incarceration. And we talked a little bit earlier about the prevalence within the African-American community and how, you know, there are some communities and there are some neighborhoods where children actually have an expectation that they will grow up and at some point in their lives become incarcerated. That should not be the standard. It should not be an expectation. And so you may ask me, well, what is it that we can do as a community to remedy this problem? No child should grow up believing that he or she will become incarcerated. We should be able to utilize what we call in the psychology profession protective factors. And what that means is that protective factors offset the risk. And in this case, we're talking about incarceration. So offsetting the risk might be after-school programs where there are mentors for the children that give them hope, that expose them to things that are outside of their environmental conditions. Those are the things that we can do to help. You know, making sure that children have positive peer relationships, that's important. And when they're in school and if they are subjected to stigma and shame, making sure that the child is not isolated. I heard someone tell me, and this was I'm not, I don't think this was a part of my research, but I believe it was one of the families that we worked with. She said, we had a child 
that had a, 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 a father that was arrested, and his picture was all in the newspaper, and he was on the news, and that day the teacher says to the rest of the class, don't say anything to him. You know, don't talk to him about it. And the thing that I would tell you that was a mistake is that that further isolated the child and made the child feel as though he was being ostracized. And so the thing is, sometimes what we need to do is actually give someone a hug, actually address the elephant in the room. So that's the kind of thing that um, I think that children go through. And then for the caregivers, I think that as a community, we probably should provide support for the elderly that happen to be on fixed income. So that's something that we can do. You asked how me about is that, the, How is that connected to the question of imprisonment? Okay, so tell, ask you me the You just said something about um, supporting the elderly who have very low incomes. Right, right. So the elderly have a tendency, you know, if, if um, the mother goes to prison or the, fa- uh, the father goes to prison, oftentimes what happens is that grandparents end up, you know, being the caregivers. And we know that, you know, uh, care- caregivers that, you know, are, say, up in age that are elderly, they're on a fixed income. And oftentimes what happens is the grandparents end up raising their children's children. And so, you know, one of the things that we can do as a community is to offer support in those areas. Got it. You also, yes, and you also asked me about the difference. What happens when a mother goes to prison versus the father? And the thing that I will tell you that is interesting and that I found that's different, and this is just based on my experience um, working with women at the um, halfway house, is that there is this thing that I call the bad mother syndrome, where people have a tendency, regardless of you know the mistakes that you know that that men make, you know, people have a tendency to look at the woman as if she should have been able to, you know prevent herself from, you know, going to prison if she was, you know, if she had a drug problem or whatever. It's just a double standard, and it's looked at a little bit different. And I had one young young lady that told me that um, both she and her brother went to uh, prison around the same time. When she came back home, she said that she basically had to find a homeless shelter to live in because she was not accepted back in her home whereas the brother was able to come home and have a room in the parents' basement. So then you would ask the question, well, what's going on with family? Um, That's something that I can't answer, and we tried to address that earlier, but in terms of support systems, I would say to the family members who are listening that you are the bedrock to those individuals who are returning home. And it is possible that you are the one that will help to prevent recidivism by, by helping these individuals to come home and reintegrate in society. Mm-hmm. Yeah, preventing recidivism seems like a hugely important goal and one that is sometimes difficult to achieve. I, I mean, prisoners come out with so much stacked against them in terms of getting a job and getting housing and paying debts, catching up on child support, reconnecting with somebody. They come out with so much stacked against them. 
Well, what, they do. what are the things that can help? Well, one of the things that can help, we talked about family as being the, um, you know, one of the most effective reentry strategies. And the thing that has to occur is that the reentry strategy cannot you know, be suspended until 60 to 90 days out as it currently is, you know. And what I mean by 60 to 90 days out is when the returning citizen is preparing to come back home and to be released, you know, generally the programming in terms of integrating back into society and, you know, helping the families become connected, that begins somewhere between 60 and 90 days out. And so what needs to happen is that families need to be involved in the reentry planning and programming at the beginning. For an example, if someone has mental health issues, and we know that 40% of, you know, say women that are incarcerated have mental health issues. We know that 78% of those women have had some kind of physical or sexual trauma associated. So we need to have that support system for these women to reintegrate. And so when you start the planning process for how do you uh, rehabilitate someone that's going in the system for, say, drug use or drug abuse or whatever the crime might be, you, in, you know, allow the family to have a, a, a say in the matter or at least be involved in that, that programming decision. If there's mental health needs, um, the family should have a representative to make sure that the loved one is getting the appropriate, you know, mental, mental health services. And also, Medical health is very important, and I'm going to share a story that's very uh, difficult to listen to, but this is a story that happened recently. So I, was, I spoke with one of our, our clients, and she, you know, at the time that I spoke with her, she was clearly um, shaken, um, visually drained, you know, she had a, you know, she, she just seemed like she was just, um, you know, uh, grieving very deeply and, you know, she just seemed worn out. And so when I sat down and I spoke with her and I asked her what was going on and she said, well, my son's been incarcerated, you know, several states away and we used to talk every day by phone. And then a period of about two months went by where she did not speak to him. And so she contacted an older, you know, one of her older sons, and she said, listen, you've got to get on the phone and call the prison where, you know, the son is and to find out what's going on. Well, come to find out, the son had been transferred to a medical ward of the prison. And when the son found out exactly what happened, come to find out he had an advanced stage cancer and that he had lost all coherence and he had 48 hours to live. Now, when I spoke to that woman, you know, clearly this woman did not know what to do. She was trying to get her scruples together to figure out and try to reconcile in her head that her son had 48 hours to live, and she had to find a way to get several states away down to the prison to spend those last moments with him when he was incoherent, you know, before he died. Now, the thing is, and what I would say about that is, is it possible, is it possible that if the family member was allowed to provide some kind of medical 
you know, um, or, or if, if she was involved in the medical decisions or if she was able to say something or be more integrated that maybe something would have happened. I don't know if it would have prolonged his life, but that is one of those difficult situations where, you know, the, the, the mother, you know, had to deal with that. And so that was very difficult, very difficult. And so I believe uh, four days later she buried him. You know, so wow. that's a very difficult situation. So that's that's completely traumatic for the mother as yes. well as, you know, I don't know who else, but, you know, bad enough for the son to get sick in prison and die there. But right. For, right. No one, for no one even to tell the family just seems bizarre. It seems so well, cruel. Yes. And, you know, the thing is, is that, you know, we at DC Project Connect, you know, we can only operate according to the information that we're we're being told. And oftentimes what happens is that when people are in crisis mode and they're calling or if they're sending us an email from our website, what happens is sometimes we get part of the story because people are, are shaken. You know, clearly they are not thinking clearly. They're not telling the entire story. I didn't know the entire story. I mean, as it came out, I was thinking that the guy you know, that her son was on death row. I wasn't sure what was going on. And then finally I continued to, you know, use my, you know, kind of empathetic listening, you know, skills, and, and, and I found out and I was able to, you know, discern what was going on. But again, that is one of the extreme cases. Um, mm-hmm. Another case, um, we dealt with a mother whose son was on uh, death row. And she, you know, just needed someone to talk to. And she said that her son had received what we call soft, you know, uh, execution dates. And what that really means is that someone has been slated for an execution date, but perhaps the, you know, governor has uh, intervened and there is a stay that's issued. She, when she talked to me, she basically said, I'm worn out and I don't know what to do. She said, I have gone through three soft execution dates. And she said, every time I go through this, I feel like I'm preparing for his funeral. You know, now I know that the story is bleak, and I know that this is saddened, but what, I, what I'm trying to do here is to raise the level of awareness and put a, a human face on those who are suffering basically in silence. And these are the kinds of extreme cases that we deal with. And, you know, of course, you know, we deal with some less extreme. But the thing is, is that these are the people that feel that they have to hide and suffer in silence. And quite frankly, they may not know, you know, who to contact, you know. And so that's why we try our best to make sure that we are in the community, you know, that we're putting flyers out, that we're going to the churches and speaking to the churches and saying to the churches, hey, this is what I found out through my research, but here's what we found out through our interaction with the community. You know, we would like to complement your prison ministry by providing support to the families. We would like to provide support to your nonprofit organization by operating in this particular space. So that's kind of what we do. Okay. Um, Gosh, you said so many things that I want to respond to. And uh, we have about a half a minute before we would ordinarily take a break. So let's just take a break now. We'll be back in a couple of minutes. 
stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. No one can tell you how much money you'll have or when you'll see your children, right? Sadly, that's wrong. It happens every day in divorce court. Don't let it happen to you. When dealing with separation, divorce, or co-parenting, there is a better way. Family mediation. Save time, save money, and make good plans for your children. Visit the Academy of Professional Family Mediators at apfmnet.org. That's apfmnet.org. Most adults are able to make good decisions about how their families can move forward. They do not need to rely on courts to make such decisions, especially in cases of divorce. Far too many people suffer unnecessary anguish because they do not know what family mediators can do. We help people discuss problems constructively in a private, confidential setting. We help them stop fighting and stay out of court. To learn more about mediation and other family matters, visit ColinFamilyMediationGroup.com. Colin has one L and no S. Are you struggling with emotional, financial, and legal stress related to divorce? The Guide to Low-Cost Divorce in Virginia by Virginia Collin and Rebecca Martin teaches how to handle these processes in any state with special attention to Virginia's laws. This book can help you take care of yourself, get free legal advice, develop a good co-parenting plan, keep expenses down, and arrange a do-it-yourself divorce. The Guide to Low-Cost Divorce in Virginia is available from Amazon for just $4.99. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. listening to Family Matters. To reach Dr. Virginia Collin or today's guest, please call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radio show at collinfamilymediationgroup.com. Now, back to Family Matters. Welcome back. I'm your host, Virginia Collin, and I'm talking today on Family Matters with Dr. Avon Hart Johnson about what happens to a family when one of one member of the family or a loved one who may not officially be a member of the family goes to prison. Um, we were talking before the break about <clears throat> some really painful stories of uh, what might what a mom or a wife outside of prison might have to deal with when a loved one is in prison. Um, And I asked you during the break, you know, is it possible to say anything about, you know, whether members of the family are allowed to be involved in knowing when someone's getting medical treatment or be involved in reentry planning? And you said that just varies by jurisdiction. It's what one's, each state has its own rules. Possibly each county has its own rules. I don't know. Um, but it's not possible to make a general statement about whether families can do that. Well, you know, in general, what I will say is this. 
if you are a family member or a wife, you have a right to inquire. And I would say that you have to call the prison. It is very important to understand the inmate's rights. They have what they call an inmate's handbook, and uh, generally that's found on the websites of most you know, uh, prisons or most facilities. So I recommend that any family member that has a loved one going to prison, that they make sure that they you know, look at those rights and look at those rules and the policies and to call the prison if for some reason that, you know, things are not uh, clearly understood. I, I do want to take a moment to, to speak about something that I found, you know, a little bit disheartening and, you know, it's, it is troubling. We talked earlier about the different dynamics of uh, family configurations, and that it's not just, you know, a married husband and wife and, you know, two children, but the dynamics in 2015 are a lot different than they were 30 years ago. So what I mean by that is you could have family members that cohabit and live together and they have children and they are living as husband and wife. And then say the husband or the wife gets incarcerated. You know, the thing that's troubling, and we've had these kind of calls before at DC Project Connect, where say the loved one is incarcerated and he's now in a segregation housing unit. And he's only able to come out, you know, one hour a day for exercise and he can only make a phone call uh, once a month. You know, so, but he can write. So the thing is, is that if you are a girlfriend or a significant other as opposed to the wife, you really don't have any right at all to get information the way that a wife would. And, you know, that's a little troubling because you can imagine, you know, what kind of situation, you know, you know the, the inmate might find himself. Now, someone would say, well, if somebody's in a segregation housing unit, then Evidently, they have a, an infraction or something caused that individual to, to become, you know, uh, in segregated housing and to be cut off and to be punished. And I would say, well, yeah, that is possible. But I've also heard, and this is me talking to inmates, that they do that to become uh, protected in protective custody because perhaps they're at a prison where there are gang members and they are a target. So sometimes they do things to get in the shoe in order to be protected. So that's just, you know, another nuance in terms of, you know, the family's right to know. Um, the other thing that I will mention, and I'd like to give a shameless plug to an organization that I head up, it's called the Advocacy and Action Coalition, and one of the things that we're looking at is, you know, those, those things that are uh, involving medical health and, and mental health issues. We believe that the family has a right to have a representative or the family has a right to, to, to be integrated into the decision-making, especially when it comes to medical and mental health issues. And so we're trying to make sure that that's one of the things that we advocate for as a coalition. Mm-hmm. Let's shift just uh, a little bit, but let's get back to talking about when the prisoner gets out of prison and re-enters the community. Mm-hmm. What happens? Well, let's, let's talk about this. Some would say that, you know, they would think that the crisis is all over 
once a loved one is ready to, you know, return home. And, you know, things are supposed to be, you know, just wonderful. And the thing that I will tell you is that you now shift from, you know, uh, one crisis point to the other. Why? Because now you've got to help the person reintegrate into the community. Suppose a person has been gone for 10 years. Technology changes so quickly, and you say, well, Dr. Avon, what in the world are you talking about? Well, I'm not just talking about Internet technology and, you know, the computer technologies. Think about a flushing toilet. You know, think about what happens if you went in the system and you have to use a handle to flush a toilet, and now you walk in front of a toilet and it flushes automatically, and you find yourself looking for the toilet, you know, uh, handle to flush, or try to find the faucet, you know, the sink, you know, and these things may seem like it's ludicrous, but these are real issues, and so you're really helping a person reintegrate and to relearn things, you know, or 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 to become acclimated to things that you know they've been actually missing for ten years. So time has stood still for them, as opposed, you know, with an exception of what they may see on television. But I think we kind of take those things for granted. The family members are the ones, or the friends, or whoever you know, the returning citizens consider their safety net. They are the ones that will help them, you know, to get reintegrated, and that's the, the, the importance of, you know, community programs to help returning citizens, to help with mentorship, to help them find a job, to give them a second chance, if you will, so that they can earn income and be able to, to get housing, you know, to overcome, you know, those those barriers that they face. You know, so it's it's very challenging in terms of, trying to find a job, you know, because, you know, for the most part, they don't have work histories. And if they do, you know, hopefully they'll be able to take that work history, you know, associated with, you know, working within the prison system and to somehow integrate it into a resume that may afford them employment. So the family members really, you know, become, you know, the the safety net, if you, if you will, to help these returning citizens to come, you know, or to, um, to retool and to become reintegrated. Do, do prisons in general have programs to help inmates acquire skills that would make them employable when they leave prison? I think that there are a number of programs. There are vocational programs. Um, there are uh you know, opportunities for inmates to, you know, to learn skills. And here's the thing, and, and I'll use D.C. as an example. If those skills are the type of skills that match the employment needs in the jurisdictions they're re- returning home to, then that would be, you know, fantastic. You know, but, you know, you think about someone that is in prison in, you know, in Texas, and I can't even give you, you know, an an idea of a vocation that may not match, you know, the employment needs, you know, within, you know, the District of Columbia. But clearly, you know, there there is, you know, got to be some uh, level of mismatch. But there are programs and there are training opportunities. But here's the thing that, that I would... Um, mention that's important. Um, Based on what I know, there are waiting lists, and this is based on the reports that I've seen, you know, from um, various uh, audit reports or Federal Bureau of Prisons, that the waiting list 
to get a job within the system, you know, that it might be, um, you know, it might be a year, two years before you can even get a job. And that the people that are returning home obviously get the preference. So you would think that, you know, just from the outside looking in, that everybody that goes to prison, you know, perhaps they get a job with Unicor, you know, and that, you know, they're going to build, you know, furniture and learn those kinds of vocational skills. That's not always the case because there are waiting lists, you know. So, but, you know, there are opportunities to earn a GED, you know, those kinds of things. Okay. I'm just noticing that we are getting sort of close to the end of the show and I want to be sure that you have an opportunity to talk about what community members can do to help families and also what families who are in crisis can do. Mm-hmm. So the thing that I would like to do is is take the crisis question uh, first. Okay. Um, I would say that if you're within the local community, you know, the thing that you can do is reach out to us and our goal is to try to pair you with the resources that you need. And we gave the web address www.dcprojectconnect.com, but we can't do it alone. There are a number of uh, community partners and churches that work in the Washington, you know, that uh, provide services in the Washington, D.C. area. And so I would say that those are the safe places to reach out. There are people and there are you know, organizations, and there are churches within the areas that, you know, can, that you can reach out to for those kinds of services, and also reach out to social services as well. Mm -hmm. Um, The thing that I would say to community members, that we need to continue to put a face to these scenarios, that we can no longer say that it's them versus us, that they're not in our neighborhood. I would, I would actually say that the individuals affected by incarceration are your community members. They are the people in your church. They are the people that work at your job. They are the people that are working at the cash register in your beauty salon. In other words, they are people that remain in silence because of the stigma and the shame associated with that. And so I'd say that if you're aware of someone that is going through, you know, the challenges associated with a loved one's incarceration, you know, perhaps... You know, the empathetic ear is what's needed, not to solve anybody's problem, but basically, you know, give them a hug, give them a listening ear so that they can vent and basically share what they might be going through. I would also say that those in the community who have heard this broadcast and would like to become involved with DC Project Connects um, initiative, that you can volunteer for us. You can go to our website, click on the contact sheet, and volunteer for us. If you have, you know, um, you know, mentoring skills, if you are, if you have legal skills, if you are a CPA, if you are a grant writer, of course, and if you have skills that you think may match what we do in terms of supporting families or even mentoring returning citizens, I'd ask you to go to our website. And you can also support us through providing donations, of course. Oh, that's right. We didn't say this is a 5013C organization, so people can't make tax tax deductible contributions. This is a 501c3 tax deductible, you know, organization, so you can certainly write us off on taxes. Absolutely. 
And I gave you the website. It's www.dcprojectconnect. You can also look us up on Facebook. I believe you can just uh, do a search. And you can find us on Twitter as well. All right. And we still have a couple of minutes. Do you have another story to tell? Or (laughs) where would you like to go with our last couple of minutes? Um, Let's see. Well, um, I don't know if I have any other stories, but I will tell you a little bit about my book. I'll use that as an opportunity. My book is called The Symbolic Imprisonment of African-American Women, A Legacy of Mass Incarceration. And this book, although it focuses primarily on African-American women, what I will tell you is that we know that grief and the pain associated with having a loved one incarcerated incarcerated, you know, transcends all cultural boundaries. We know that pain is pain and that grief is grief. And so, therefore, I would ask you if you're interested in, if you're a helping professional and you're interested in understanding this phenomena called symbolic imprisonment, then I would ask you to, you know, um, buy our book. It is on Amazon.com and it is um, all the proceeds from the book uh, goes to DC Project Connect and helping families, and that's a hundred percent of the donations is you know uh, applied to supporting families. So I would tell you that the book is instrumental in helping understand what a loved one goes through when their loved one is incarcerated, and it's also designed. Uh, to help helping professionals, you know, such as mental health professionals and social services and other helping professionals to use it as a handbook to support those and understand, you know, what is it that families actually go through when their loved one is incarcerated and what are the crisis points that are associated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the messages that came through to me loud and clear is that community organizations, churches or other community organizations can probably help by hosting support groups yes, so indeed. that people have a set of people w- with whom it's okay to sit down and talk about how awful it is and how to make it better. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And that is one of the things that we are trying to do. We're working at the grassroots level to make our rounds, uh, particularly in the D.C. area, to talk to the churches about, you know, uh, what we're finding and, you know, and we're hoping that we will generate the conversation about symbolic imprisonment so that individuals recognize that perhaps aside from the 2.3 million people incarcerated, that there are exponentially higher numbers of people who are symbolically imprisoned. And that's scary. That is scary. All right. We need to go now. I want to say thank you very much, Dr. Avon Hutt-Darnson. You have taught us a lot. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us this week on Family Matters. Please tune in for another edition featuring host Dr. Virginia Collin next Tuesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Be kind, heal, and grow.